The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome to the April 2nd, 2015 episode of Getting In, everybody. Decisions, decisions, decisions. That's all anyone who's a senior or who has a senior seems to be talking about right now. That could be because that's my business and that's what I do all day, every day. But it certainly feels like when you read the media, read newspaper, watch television, that decisions are top of mind. And uh, that's all those people are talking about. And we're going to be talking about that too today. One big element of getting a yes is also getting the financial aid package from that school. And Lori Peltier, who joined us a few episodes ago, she's back today to talk us through uh, those financial aid packages. And for those of you who are not yet seniors or for those parents of younger students, we also have something for you. Zaragoza Guerra, who's a former senior admissions officer at MIT and Caltech, is going to be on the line to talk through timelines Basically, what to be thinking about and when as you go through high school. At the end of the episode or at the end of the show, we're going to take your questions the way we always do. So please give us a call at 866-472-5788. We had our first caller last episode, and I'd love to have another one today or a couple. I also have another offer to tell you about at the end of the show. But first, let's get back to those decisions. Karen Spencer, my colleague and a former senior admissions officer at Georgetown, is back She joined us on February 19th to to discuss extracurricular activities. Today, she's here to talk about decisions. Welcome, Karen. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm doing well. My seniors seem to be doing okay. Uh, They are getting their decisions back. Yours, too. We had a few tears, but nothing too dramatic yet. That's good. I think one big thing that we as a team go back and forth on a lot at this time of year is... We've got students who are super happy. We have a few who are maybe unhappy about a couple of decisions and finding it hard as a result to get happy about the positive decisions that they did get. What what is kind of the overarching thing that you would love for people listening today who are in this situation themselves to think about or be thinking about right now? I think um, a few things. You know, I think it depends to some degree on what happens to you. <laughs> yep. You know, I think if you got a ton of acceptances, you're good, right? You're happy, you're whatever. I think it's a little bit harder um, sometimes for those, obviously, who didn't get in someplace or are waitlisted at places, um, and they have, um, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit of a wound to your ego on occasion, and, and we get that. Um, I, think, I think you have to get kind of your time to mourn, and then they got to move on, right? Yep. Because this is one kind of aspect 
of your entire life. That's it. Like, this is, this is a, a moment in time. And, you know, rejection can feel hard to take. You take it personally. It's not. You know, I, I cannot tell you how many times at Georgetown I would read an application and be like, I love this kid, and then be like, deny. Right? It had nothing to do with whether I liked the kid or not. Right? I yeah. deny tons of kids I loved. I just didn't have space for them. And, um, you know, and then and sometimes I had to admit some kids that I, you know, maybe sometimes weren't even my favorites. But, and that's just the reality of college admissions. And so I think, you know, for any student, I think if you've got a lot of acceptances, be thankful, be lovely, and, you know, let's not be too boastful. <laughs> yes. If you've got some wait lists, let's talk about that in a minute. And if you've got a little few more rejections than you'd like, you know what? I think it's okay to be a little sad. You can even sometimes be a little angry at your institution. Don't get out on social media about it. But, okay, if you're a little frustrated with it, that's fine. But take a week, let your emotions flow, and then we got to move on, right? Because that's what life is, right? You know, there's going to be rejection in life. And, you know, I tell parents this all the time. I I actually mind it when a kid gets some rejection letters. In fact, I think it's, you know, I don't want them to get 10 of them. But, you know, one, two, three. I would say there's a real learning moment here. And, frankly, parents, they take how to deal with rejection a lot from you. Um, and mm-hmm. so I would say, you know, if there's projection of active life. You're going to like a girl one day that doesn't like you back. You're going to want a job you're not going to get, a promotion you're not going to get, right? That's just reality of life, unfortunately. But learning how to deal with that with grace and dignity um, is, is a skill that can be learned and acquired. And so I think this is a great opportunity for students to kind of do that and see all the good things that did, they did come through for them. Um, and also for parents, frankly, to teach kids how to deal with that rejection. You know, I, when I was at Georgetown, I, it was always parents. It was so often parents that would call in and say, I don't understand how you didn't admit my daughter. And I often thought, you know, if you can't get over it, and this isn't even about you, how in the world is your child going to get over it, right? You're yeah. modeling for them what you do when rejection shows at your door. Um, and so that's also, I think, a lot of learning um, opportunities here for, for, for students, but they're going to get a lot of that from their parents. Yeah, I agree. I Bottom line, too, for me is, this decision of where you got in or where you didn't get in, if you got in where you wanted, guess what? This isn't going to set you up for life. If you didn't get in where you wanted, guess what? This isn't going to make your life a ruinous mess from here on out. So things to think exactly. about. So in you know, terms I think, again, of- this is one aspect and so much of life. And, you know, I think this is, we say this all the time. And, and, you know, Beth and I were just having this conversation on email with our colleagues and you know, I think we, we have some of it more of an objective perspective because we see the whole picture in its entirety, right? We've seen it from beginning to end and, and how some decisions get made. And, and, um, and I, think, I think so much pressure is put on the students that somehow where their diploma is from is, an, uh, is a reflection of who they are. And it's not at all. I, I've known yep. terrible human beings to go to the Ivy League, <laughs> terrible people um, that I would not want to watch my children or be in a room with if I had to be. And the loveliest people I've ever met go to schools that you've never heard of. So, you know, this is not an indication of your character. It's not even often a good indicator of how bright you are, to be frank. Um, you know, this can be a whole host of factors. So it's, like you said, this is one aspect of your life, and frankly, what you do with it is going to determine how it ends up. Exactly. Let's talk about some concrete stuff. Now that we've given everyone that pep talk that we've all been having behind the scenes, let's say you get a no. One big question that we see come in to our help desk and that we take from our own families is, can you appeal the decision? This school said, no, I don't know what they were thinking. I want to appeal and see if they will re-review my application. 
So the answer to that is it depends to some degree, which is my, as I always say, my most frequent answer to any question about the college admissions process. But generally speaking, um, it depends on the school. So the more selective a school gets, the less likely they are to have an appeal process um, or a very formal appeals process, let's put it that way. Um, larger schools, particularly some less selective schools, may have a more formal appeals process. Um, it really differs from school to school. Some have none. Some have, you know, right on their website, it'll say, if you'd like to appeal your decision, you know, click here and then follow the direction. Um, so, unfortunately, it's really, you'll have to go to each school that you're interested in. That said, the one universal thing I can say is that schools, by and large, do not reverse decisions, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Because you also have to think about, they had all the information they asked for. You gave everything you were supposed to, right? Mm-hmm. And they made a decision on your folder with what they wanted to hear from you, right? So... You know, if they were missing something, they usually already, you know, reached out and got it. Um, or if they thought, you know, I really can't make a decision without this piece of information, you know, they would have found it before making a decision. So 90, I would I would venture a guess 99.5% of the time, that decision is final. So it's probably a futile effort. Um, I can tell you at Georgetown, we didn't have a formal appeals process, but I'd say on average every year about 100 kids would send in a letter of appeal. And in my entire entire time at Georgetown, only one time, did we ever reverse a decision? And that's because we had incorrect test scores for a kid. They had a very common name. And so we had utilized um, somebody else. It was like a John Smith, right? We had somebody else's um, SAT scores of different John Smiths. And so we did review his application because we had false information. But And if, you, if we pulled all of our colleagues right before we had this call to see, um, you know, from them, if they had, you know, ever really remembered, um, you know, appealing it. And it was a, um, you know, very, very, very infrequently. Yep. So Never I would say, you know, if, you to, if you need to do it to feel like you put all your, you know, that you just so you can say you did it and it's going to make you sleep better at night knowing you asked, you know, I don't think there's any harm in it. You know, they already said no, so there's not like it's going to get any worse. But <laughs> also I would not, you know, put, I would, you know, bank any money on that they're going to say yes because it's just really, really not likely to happen. Okay. So I, I think, yes, great message. Basically, don't count on it, and uh, nine, I like that statistic, 99.5% uh, unlikely to happen. I want to just very quickly mention wait lists. Uh, last week, Kenning Dick was on as my guest, and he and I talked through wait lists quite a bit. So I'm not really going to dig into it here except to say that there's certainly no requirement that you remain on the wait list and that most likely any waitlist activity in terms of whether or not they're going to take you off of the waitlist is not going to happen until after May 1. If you want to hear that segment, go to our archives. There's great stuff in the archives, and this show aired just last week, so check that one out. But let's move um, quickly. We don't have all that much time left, but let's talk about acceptances. This is the fun part. You have, hopefully, you had a great list of schools that you were really interested in. Now you've heard back, and you have at least a couple that you're choosing between, how do you decide between your options? So I really always encourage students if they, you know, some people know where they want to go, and that's great. But if you're really debating between maybe two schools, maybe three, then mm-hmm. I do encourage you to go to an accepted student reception um, or, you know, open house on campus. I do think a school looks a little bit differently um, in your eyes when you know you're in Right. Otherwise, mm-hmm. when you first visit, it's a little bit mythical, right? This could be a place I go to college, right? Well, now it really is a place you could go to college. And so I do think 
one, you look at it with kind of different eyes. And I also think most open houses for accepted students are bigger than the average tour, right? They may have the heads of the different departments out. You may be able to see a dorm that was not on the normal tour, right? It's kind of a bigger picture thing. You can also see the other kids that were accepted with you, right? And if you're, yep. you know, we were just kind of having this conversation, you know, does everybody around you, are they friendly? Do you care if they're friendly, right? Is everybody there super preppy? Does everybody there have blue hair and Birkenstock? Does it matter to you, right? Because if you're one and you see everybody of the opposite kind, you may think these are not my people, right? Or maybe I want to be with somebody different than I am, right? I want somebody who's going to challenge me, whatever. But I do think that second visit to campus for most students usually seals the deal in which one they're meant to go to. So that would be my first piece of advice. And then, you know, I always joke that if you really can't decide, and I've had kids who will literally, I mean, April 31st is, or 30th, you know, was sitting there, and they are not sure. And I said, well, flip a coin. And they'll be like, what? Yeah. And I'll say, seriously, flip a coin. And, you know, you know, this school is at his head, and this is tails. And when they flip it over and it's tails, how did you feel about that? Were you disappointed? Right. Were you excited? Sometimes we have an opinion that we don't realize we have um, until really your hand is forced. So, you know, the best thing I can say, too, is go with your gut. I know that's not very scientific, but I cannot really emphasize that enough, right? And, and, and stop kind of listening to the chatter around you. You know, this is not, your mom doesn't get to go back to college. So it's not about which one your mom likes best or your best friend or your boyfriend, right? This mm-hmm. is supposed to be the best four years of your life. So for that to be the case, you need to listen to your gut. Yes, exactly. You are the only one who should be making that decision. Oh, see, very quickly, one really important thing is uh, you do need to make that decision by May 1st. That is the common reply date. Colleges want to hear back from you by May 1st. Of course, there are schools that are accepting students all year round and making decisions, but for a big chunk of colleges, May 1 is the common reply date. Anything here to keep in mind or anything to not do uh, as when it comes to that May 1 deadline? Uh, well, turn it in <laughs> because that is a hard and fast deadline for a lot of places. Like, you know, a lot of schools, if you don't have it in by May 1st and there are classes enrolled by then and you get it in, you know, four days later, you're out of luck. Yep. Um, so get it in on time and don't, you know, like don't double deposit. Sometimes I've had students who be like, well, can't, I just can't make up my mind. Can't I just deposit at both of these schools and then just undeposit? And I'm like, no, you can't, right? That is a huge no-no. Um, and secondly, what are you going to know in the middle of May that you don't know now, right? You're not yep. being able to make a decision then figure out what you need to do to make a decision so that come May 1st you feel confident in your answer. Yep. Love it. Great advice. Karen, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thanks, Beth. Have a great day, and good luck to all those people making decisions out there. Absolutely. And after the break, Lori Peltier is going to be here to talk about how to evaluate the financial aid packages that came with many of those acceptances. So don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, 
how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. We're back. And with me is Lori Peltier, who talked us through who typically qualifies for financial aid back on our second show in February. Check out those archives. I'm telling you, I promise there's lots of good stuff there. Today, she's here to talk to us about how to evaluate the packages that accompany many of those acceptance letters. Welcome, Lori. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So this week we're talking about reviewing financial aid packages and award traps. My first question for you, and um, as those of you who have been listening to the show know, we're actually going through this in my own home with my stepson. What should a student, a parent, or the family in general look for on a financial aid award letter? How do they interpret that? Well, Beth, first I'd say they should start with what not to look for. A lot of people automatically look at the bottom line or the total aid offered. That number can be very deceiving. The award letter really needs to be dissected to determine which part is grants and scholarships or the good stuff, the free money, and then how much of it is loans and work study. Because loans and work study... Um, don't really reduce your bill the way you would think they would. Uh, Loans just change uh, when you pay the money, not what you pay. And work-study isn't deducted from the bill. It's earned by the student in a paycheck. So I suggest setting up a chart or using one of the online uh, award comparison tools for help in analyzing the offers and putting the dollars into the different categories and not looking at the bottom line to begin with. Next, I would say when you're dissecting the award letter, you also want to look for the cost of attendance or what does the college say it will cost for that student to attend for one year. The cost of attendance is an estimate, and it includes some of the direct costs like tuition, fees, room and board, but it also includes some variable costs like books, supplies, and transportation. Mm -hmm. The amount they offer doesn't really mean anything to you if you don't know what the total cost is to begin with. 
So what you're trying to determine from this award letter is what will my or my family's out-of-pocket expense be after all of the aid is applied. And lastly, I'd say a student should look for the fine print. For example, if they're offered a scholarship, what is the GPA requirement to keep that scholarship each year? Or do they have to live on campus or stay in the same major to keep that scholarship? Mm-hmm. And on the loans that are offered, because most award letters do include loans, is it a student or a parent loan? Is it accruing interest while the student is in school, or does the interest start after graduation? And what is the interest rate that's going to be charged on the loan? So those types of details will make a big difference in the decision of whether they're going to accept or decline the offer. How do you know if a loan is going to start accruing uh, charges while the student is in school or whether those won't start until, um, or interest, or whether that's not going to start until after they graduate? Typically, with each award letter, um, back in the day when I was in an aid office, we used to put it on paper. Now it's probably all online. There are detailed descriptions of each item that you'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, if it says subsidized student loan, that typically means that the interest is subsidized while the student is in school. So there's zero interest while they're in school, and the interest doesn't start till after. An unsubsidized loan is the opposite. It is accruing interest while the student is in school. Parent loans accrue interest while they're in school. And then there's one other loan that is not that common but is available called a federal Perkins loan that uh, is a subsidized loan. But it would say it in the detailed description of the loan that was offered to you. But at a very basic level, those words, subsidized means won't be accruing till after you graduate, unsubsidized generally means starts accruing immediately upon taking out the loan. Yes, yes. Great. How do you know if it's a good offer? We're looking at offers ourselves at home, and sometimes it's hard to tell, is this a really good offer? Or And I, I would love to get some guidance, and I'm sure many of our listeners would as well, on that. I look at it that choosing a college is not much different from any other purchase you make, like a home or a car. Uh, a good offer is only considered good in comparison to another offer. So that's why it's nice that students today are applying to a variety of schools, so they have other offers to compare their offer to. So when you're comparing offers, it helps to try to get as close as you can to an apples-to-apples comparison. For example, you might have received offers from both in-state public schools and then more expensive private schools. So the cost is very different for those two schools. You have to do the math to determine after the aid package what is remaining to be paid because that's really what you want to get down to. But you also want to be consistent in what you include in the cost and what you include in the financial aid. For example, I went through the process last year with my twins who are now freshmen in college, and when I was receiving the offers, we decided to ignore books and supplies. We knew we could shop around on Amazon or wherever else to buy the cheapest books and supplies we needed. So we weren't going to factor in the books and supplies in any of the costs for any of the schools we looked at. Um, but we also ignored the federal direct student loan because that loan was offered. It's an entitlement. Every student can get it. It was the same amount for every school. So I didn't factor that in because that was going to be there at every school that we looked at. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, we looked at the transportation costs. Uh, my daughter was looking at schools all over the country. So I had to factor in transportation, airfare, for those schools that were far away. But for my son, he was only looking for schools that were within a driving distance, so I didn't factor in transportation costs when I was comparing his awards. 
So it's really going to vary based on the schools you have, but you, you've got to try to do an apples-to-apples apples comparison to see if you have a good offer compared to the other offers you have. Right, so you shouldn't be blinded by, wow, this school gave me a big chunk of money, and then forget about all that other stuff because when you sit down and factor it all out, it may even be that the school that gave you a big chunk of money, it still doesn't make it cheaper than another school. That maybe <laughs> exactly, exactly, with. and vice versa. The school that was the cheapest to begin with may not be the cheapest now. Yeah, we've actually found that exact thing in that one of the state schools uh, the mm-hmm. offer is very good. It's not an expensive school, but because of some money that he was awarded from a private institution, that institution is now actually a cheaper option than the state right. option. So, And unfortunately, a lot of families don't realize that on the front end, and they ignore applying to the private institutions. Right. Big mistake. Don't do that. They can't <laughs> give you money if you don't apply to them, right? So right. <laughs> at least give it a shot. What if there's a part of the offer that you don't want? Can you decline something that's been offered, a loan, for example, or, or some other element of the offer? Yes, you can. Um, you can um, you're given that option with the award letter, or you can do it at a later date. So loans often are declined if you don't need the money, or uh, families who don't want their child working a work-study job often decline the work-study. But I would recommend that you wait until you have all your finances in order and you know that you can pay the bill without the work st- without the, the student loans or um, you know that you've really looked at your schedule and you really don't think you want the work-study because it's very hard especially work-study, to get that back after the fact if you decline it up front. And you have really until September to cancel any offer. So you can keep them on there but decline them at a later date, or you can decline them now if you're sure you don't want them. Gotcha. Will the award be the same for every year of college? I know that's a big fear for a lot of parents and, and students, if they're paying attention as well, that you'll get one this great offer freshman year that's going to entice you to come, but then the following year the cost is going to double or just not be the same. And so right. is it the same every year? Probably not, and for, for two reasons. One is that the need-based aid, anything that's not a scholarship that's on your offer, is something you apply for with the financial aid application every year, and you report your income and your assets and your family size. So your need-based aid can change year to year as your income goes up and down or as the number of children in your household in college increases or decreases. So you might get more money in the future, but you also might get less if your income goes up or you you no longer have two kids in college. The second reason why your aid can change year to year is that the amount of federal student loans that a student can borrow increases each year that they progress in college. So as a freshman, they can borrow 5500 but as a sophomore, they can borrow 6500 So they may get more money their sophomore year because that loan increased, or the school might adjust something else that they gave them so that the, the um, amount of money stays the same. And lastly, the merit aid will probably stay the same if they maintain the GPA that's required. So that's why merit aid is usually the best, even if the parent's income goes up or down, the merit aid will be there as long as the GPA requirement is met. Exactly. It's on the student then, and then they, of course, have a little more skin in the game and a little bit more incentive to do well, ideally. Right, right. Well, Lori, thank you so much. You're going to be back right at the end of the show. Um, yes. 
So you, she can take your college finance questions. So please give us a call at 866-472-5788 if you've got a question. Don't forget, I have another special offer to share at the end of the show. Uh, and right after the break, Zaragoza Guerra is going to be here, and we're going to be talking about timelines. So we'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. On the morning of August 5th, 1962, the world awoke to the shocking news that Marilyn Monroe, one of the biggest icons in Hollywood history, had been found dead. What really happened that night? Join Nina Bosky as she seeks to uncover both the life and tragic death of Marilyn Monroe and what keeps her so popular over 50 years later. Good Night Marilyn Radio, live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. I know there are people out there listening who have questions, so please give us a call, 866-472-5788. For those of you who are listening who are not seniors or you don't currently live with a senior, this segment is for all of you. Joining me today is Zara Gozaguerra, who is a colleague of mine and who was a senior admissions officer at both MIT and Caltech. He is here to discuss planning ahead and what families and students can do throughout the end of middle school and into high school to prepare for college and the admissions process. Welcome, Zaragoza. Thank you, Beth. So one of the big things that we talk to families about all the time is the importance of making good choices early on because those are going to then support the student in having better options when it comes time to apply to college. So let's talk a little bit more about what does that mean, making good choices, and kind of... um, I was hoping we could take listeners through um, a little bit of a what should we be thinking about this year. So with that in mind, 
What should eighth graders and probably more importantly at this age, eighth grade parents be thinking about uh, as far as their students are concerned in, in the eighth grade year? Great, great. You know, one of the things that I always um, like to think of in terms of the college admissions process is that, you know, it's very much a journey. You know, you're journeying out to to get to that uh, destination, which is going to be college. And so the eighth grade year is a perfect time to chart your path, to look at the map, take out the map, and figure out which direction are you going to go. You don't necessarily need to know the exact destination, which college, but you have to have a general sense for, for where you're going. And there is so much panic with respect to planning and admissions. You know, I like to tell families, don't worry, it's not as if you need to absolutely fill out an application at this point in time. What you do need to focus in, however, is on uh, curriculum choices as well as extracurricular activities. So no one is going to see what a student did in middle school, or nor, one, nor is anyone ever going to ask, hey, what did you do in middle school? So <laughs> this is the time to really assess what you liked about middle school, what classes you liked, and how are you going to move those forward into high school? I'm figuring out the, the, the core curriculum classes, the most important classes that, that one should take, and making sure that you are taking those classes um, throughout high school, and how are you going to get to that end result senior year. So that's the perfect opportunity to really chart the course and figure out uh, how those curriculum uh, choices are going to impact the end result in terms of senior year. Yeah, I think one one big thing, too, that I advise is get a hold of the course curriculum for the high school and make sure that if you are if you are in eighth grade and it's April, you may actually be already choosing your courses for next year. So you want to make sure that if the goal is to get to AP Spanish by the time you're a senior, that probably means you need uh, some form of Spanish in your freshman year. It's not the year to take off and then figure, well, I'll pick it back up again. Uh, so, you know, getting that concrete information, I think, is super helpful to, to do in eighth grade. Exactly. You know, chances are you might be in a particular math track. You know, what is yes. the end result um, depending upon what you start off with in ninth grade? And is there any way that you can alter that end result? If you uh, want to end up taking calculus at some point, what are the steps that you're going to need to do to get you there? Exactly. And uh, to your point, too, middle schools are great. There are some courses that are going to show up on a transcript. Um, sometimes students are doing a little bit more advanced coursework in math. That's the most common thing. And that eighth grade coursework may show up, in fact, on the transcript. I can tell you that I don't know about you at MIT or Caltech, but I know at Penn, we didn't really count. That wasn't high school coursework. We didn't really notice it. We didn't really pay attention to the grade. We were focused on the courses actually taken in high school. So even though they were on the transcript, we weren't really paying attention to them. Yeah, that's a great point because I've, I'll have a lot of families say, hey, you know, I started perhaps Spanish in middle mm -hmm. school and I took Spanish 1 in 8th grade and so started Spanish 2 in ninth grade. Well, when I look at the transcript, in all honesty, I was mostly focused in on what did you actually take in high school. So it's not as we discounted that Spanish 1 being taken in 8th grade. It's just that we weren't necessarily particularly focused in on the grade. We'd focus in on the grades that the students started in high school, in ninth grade. Yep. That's when the, the record really, really begins. Exactly. So now you're a ninth grader, and what are you thinking about this year, freshman year? 
I think in ninth grade, it's a great time to rethink some of those decisions that you made <laughs> in eighth grade. You've had some chance to get involved in some extracurricular activities. You've had a chance to immerse yourself in some of the tracks. Maybe you're in an honors curriculum. Maybe you're in a college placement curriculum. Maybe. Uh, so, you know, do you challenge yourself a little bit more? How are you going to get a little bit more involved in some of the activities? So, you know, definitely starting in ninth grade, you, you do need to have kind of a game plan in terms of, okay, these are going to be some extracurricular activities that I'm going to be involved in and make sure that you hit the ground running because uh, the, what you, this, is, this is good foundation for what's going to take place in 10th grade, then 11th grade, and by the time you're a senior. So uh, not a bad idea to, to really take a look at those extracurricular options um, and making sure that you are getting involved in those things that you really want to get involved with. And, 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 you know, diving into that. Um, And ideally sticking with, and the the reason that we talk about that you really want them is because in a perfect world, you're going to do the same things that you do freshman year all the way through to the end. So it's, it's sort of nice if you've got it figured out already, Hey, I really like these things. This is what I'm going to stick with. That's a perfect world. It's not going to happen in every single activity, but that's why. Exactly. And the last thing you want to do is, you know, look at your resume and see, hey, I didn't really do anything in ninth grade and panic in in 10th grade and start getting involved. And I'm going to all of a sudden take up piano. Well, you're not going to become the greatest pianist, perhaps. Starting in 10th grade, it's best to, you know, do those things a little bit earlier and, and, yep. and start diving into those things in 9th grade to really get a feel for them. Yes. So, I'd so also say it's, oh, you have it's one probably more thing a good idea to, to just start mm-hmm. talking to your guidance counselor about, you know, what's going to happen the following year in terms of testing and starting to uh, get a sense for that. Um, you know, just know what's around the corner. Um, there's nothing major that's going to take place with regards to testing in, in ninth grade or even, you know, in 10th grade. You know, some of those tests that are going to happen in 10th grade are, are, are going to be precursor tests. But it's not a bad idea at least just to talk, start to, talking to the guidance counselor saying, hey, you know, am I slated to take, you know, some of these tests in 10th grade, uh, making sure that you know that it's around the corner. Yep, yep. And so by test, you're talking about, the PSAT. We're talking about the PSAT. We're talking about the Aspire. These are um, essentially uh, precursor tests to the standardized tests that one would take to to get into college. Um, There are no negative consequences to those tests. uh, So I don't think a student necessarily needs to be absolutely prepared for them. um, But they should be prepared to know whether or not they're going to be taking them and taking advantage of them uh, because they are great opportunities for a student to become familiar with the tests so that way they can know where they need to improve upon before they take the actual tests. Exactly. So if you know that in October of your sophomore year, you're going to have the opportunity to take the PSAT, it's good to know about that freshman year so that in September of sophomore year, you can say, hey, I haven't heard anything more about that PSAT that's happening in October. Let me ask somebody versus finding out in November that there was a PSAT offered in October and you didn't know anything about it and you didn't take it. So being aware, I think, is a key. What else? Aside from the Aspire, which is the pre-ACT and potentially the PSAT, which a lot of juniors take in the fall, um, but also sophomores can take and which we do encourage, what other things should families be thinking about in sophomore year? 
Um, I also always get a lot of questions with respect to uh, summer activities. You know, should I start thinking about those? Uh, granted, that takes place over the summer, but planning for that is going to mm-hmm. take place during the school year. So there are, you know, if one is thinking about going to a particular camp, an academic camp, or, you know, an athletic camp and, and so forth, some of these deadlines are going to happen during the sophomore year. So it's pretty important to start thinking about those perhaps even in January of the sophomore year before one misses all the deadlines. (laughs) So uh, give it some thought, try to figure out, okay, what do I want to do? What are some lessons that I feel like I want to learn? Are there any things that I've got a particular passion for or interest in? Anything that spikes my curiosity uh, with respect to either academics or extracurriculars? And would I like to explore some of those things a little bit further. And then that can help guide the student in in researching some of those opportunities and definitely have hopefully enough time to apply to them and not miss any of those deadlines. Right. And I think something else that I would add is that in sophomore year, in those activities you're involved in, a lot of colleges love to see some leadership. They don't require Mm -hmm. it necessarily, but um, I encourage my students to be thinking about, okay, well, I'm part of the newspaper. I really enjoy being on the newspaper, and I want to be editor-in-chief. Well, how did the current editor-in-chief get to that position? Were they the managing editor uh, in their junior year? And therefore, how did that person get the managing editor role? And what should you be trying to do in sophomore year to position yourself along the way so that by the time you're a senior, you are one of the prime candidates for that role? That also involves thinking ahead and, and something I encourage. Exactly. And, and what you might want to do and what I encourage students to do even in the sophomore year is start documenting all the things that they've already done yep. uh, so that they know which direction they want to take it. So not a bad idea to, you know, take out a spreadsheet and start documenting these are my activities and, you know, these are the years I participated in. This is how much involved I was in each of these. And not only that, but give a description for what you feel you contributed to that club or activity, what you feel uh, were your accomplishments. And then take a step back from that after you've documented everything and see where do I want to take this by next year? Are there any new directions that I want to take this? And if so, then I know these are the things that I might need to do in order to get me there. Right. I think it's a great idea, too, because you forget what you've been doing. And if you write down how many hours per week and how many weeks per year and you keep a running document of that, guess what? That's stuff that's going to go right on your application. So you're also actually doing some pre-application work by doing that exercise. So that's really great advice. How about the exactly. junior You're cutting year. and pasting and yeah. not having to do it the night before the application is due. Exactly. Well, we don't do any of that here at College Coach. There's no night before, not with the students that we work with. At least that's what we hope. So we don't have that much time left, Zaragoza. And then here we have junior year, which is a big year. So what can we tell people about junior year in the time we have left? The most important thing to realize is this is probably when the testing is going to occur. So uh, this is when the rubber hits the road in terms of the actual admissions process. So students should be geared up to take their formal standardized tests sometime more than likely second half of the junior year. That's when most students will take it. Um, It's important to, you know, try to get it done by March, at least that first test. The reason I say by March is that that will give you enough time to 
to figure out, okay, what schools are in the running for me? Because you're going to need to start doing some hard research with respect to schools. And it's hard to figure out what schools might be in line if you don't necessarily know your test scores. By this point, you will have had a transcript that will get you a GPA that's not going to be all too dissimilar from the GPA you'll be submitting to colleges and universities. So you have some real data points that your guidance counselor or a coach can help use to figure out what schools might be appropriate for you and, and figure out what are some of the you know schools that would be good prospects. Yep. And just um, for everyone out there listening, we're actually going to be talking about the uh, really taking those data points and using them to craft a list in a future segment. Uh, I think that's really great advice and more to the point of what you were saying in terms of taking one of either the ACT or the SAT for the first time by March. What's also really important about that is I encourage my students to try and get all of their testing out of the way by the end of junior year because by the fall of senior year, the last thing you're going to want to be doing is taking an ACT or an SAT if you can possibly avoid it because you're going to be busy filling out your applications. You're going to be doing a full course load because there's no slacking in senior year. You're going to be um, very involved. And in fact, if as a senior, you may have a few leadership roles. So there's not a lot of time to do um, much more. And when you add standardized testing on top of that, it can just be a little overwhelming. So try and get it done by the end of junior year. Exactly. June would be perfect. Otherwise, things will snowball. Exactly. It's not always possible, but if you plan ahead, it can be. Zaragoza, thank you so much. I really appreciated having you on today. There's some great advice. Um, When we come back, Lori and I are going to be taking your admissions and college finance questions. You can call us at 866-472-5788 if you'd like your question answered on air. I also have that special offer I'm going to be sharing, so stay tuned. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. 
That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody, and thanks for sticking around for the Q&A portion of the show. And We're going to get right into it because we don't have a ton of time. Lori, there was a question related to what we talked about a little bit earlier, and that is about the loan. So we talked a little bit about loans that come as part of a package and um, the loans that are going to accrue interest after you graduate or mm-hmm. will actually start accruing right away. But what about... The, maybe you want to borrow some additional money. So the question is really, are the loans on the award letter the only loans that I can borrow as a parent? Absolutely not. There are lots of other loans that they can borrow. Um, and I think that's, you know, what we talked about before, coming up with your bottom line. What is it going to cost this family out of pocket? Once you know what that amount is, then you have to look at your cash flow, your savings, and maybe you have to borrow to cover that out-of-pocket expense. So there are additional uh, loans and payment plans that a family can apply for. Most colleges will send out a brochure or have it on their website or both where it's called a payment options brochure where they'll list different loans that families have taken in the past that might be specific to that school or that state or just some familiar loans for that college. And then they will also detail the information about the monthly payment plan that the school offers where you can take what you owe or a portion of what you owe for the year divided into 10 or 12 equal monthly payments. So if you have the cash flow from your household budget, you might be able to stay out of debt or borrow less if you can afford to do the monthly payment plan and a loan on the side. The colleges really don't care how you piece it together. You can piece mm-hmm. it together a variety of ways with payment plans, student loans, parent loans, uh, savings, or outside scholarships. They just want it all paid on time. So the bill for the school comes out in July, and it's due by usually around August 1st uh, for most traditional colleges. So you want to have whatever loans you're going to take or payment plans you're going to join, you want to have them all ready to go and approved before August 1st. Gotcha. And then next week, interestingly enough, or directly related to what we're talking about right here, we're going to be talking about how much a family or a student really should plan to borrow for school. And Mm -hmm. I think we're seeing in the news all the time lately stories of students who are burdened with an incredible amount of debt when they graduate from college. And so we'll be talking through what's really reasonable and how much is too much. And I think there is is a limit to how much a family should be borrowing. And so we're going to dig into that a little bit. Another question that... I'm sorry. We're, um, I said that's a great topic and very timely. Yes, for sure. Especially because I think a lot of times parents and students can have stars in their eyes about a school and it can seem a small thing to borrow a lot of money when you're getting that school you always dreamed about, but it's not a small thing. And when you graduate, it's really not a small thing because your time is done there and you have a big, big bill left um, to pay. 
Um, another question came in from a parent about other methods of deciding between schools. Um, Karen Spencer, when she was on earlier in the show, talked about flipping a coin, uh, talked about attending student admit uh, days, talked about um, just kind of going with a gut reaction. And um, I have a parent here who's curious about what else a student can do. And for me, I think there I have two suggestions that I give students. Um, one of them is about really digging into the academics that the student is interested in. So I'm working with a student right now who has a lot of exposure to China. She has studied in China. She's studied Chinese. And she's also done some um, Asian civilization courses and really studied the culture. And so for her, that's a, that's a subject area she wants to continue to delve into in college. And one of the differences between the schools that she was accepted to may very well be how much is available to her at those schools in this area. So at a couple of those schools, the programs may be not going to offer a whole lot more than what she's already studied. And some of the other schools, the programs may offer quite a bit more. And that's got to be a pretty big differentiator for her. Uh, it may turn out not to be a big differentiator at all because they may all have similar things. But uh, I generally advise digging a little bit more deeply. When you are in the early stages of figuring out where you want to go, students don't always drill down quite as far as they should. And now is the time to do that work. So taking a look at course catalogs, looking really closely at the major, are there some professors there with whom you would really like to study because maybe their research is particularly interesting. Um, all of those things are important factors in where you wind up. Uh, Lori, I was curious if for you there are any key things that you would encourage a family to look at from a financial perspective as they're making those final decisions. Um, there may not be anything else beyond what we already discussed, but uh, just in case, I thought I'd throw it out there. There are two that I can think of. One is you have to look beyond freshman year. So many people are blinded. This is what I can pay for freshman year. You have to multiply that times four and then sometimes five. So it might not seem so bad to borrow $10,000 to cover the cost for freshman year, but you're really going to have to borrow 40 or more uh, to get through all four years. So look the long, the long haul, the whole program. And secondly, um, I, I guess you have to factor in that Expenses might change in future years. Um, you know, your aid package might go down if your income goes up. Uh, the cost of the college might go up. So, um, you know, just looking not just at the aid package you have here, but thinking about all four years. Right. It's great advice. Thank you very much. And I have, I have time for one more question. And um, this is from a parent who is wondering about, uh, recommendation letters. And I do want to say that we will in a future show talk uh, about this quite a bit more in depth, how to think about who to ask, how to um, make the ask, and how to give the person who's going to write the letter a really good framework to write the letter that you're hoping that they will write. Um, but in the immediate future, for those of you who were very fascinated by the timeline because you're not yet a senior, uh, maybe your child is still in middle school, maybe you are just starting out high school, uh, it's never too early to start feeling comfortable around adults. Um, so whether that is having your child order for themselves at the restaurant when you go out to dinner or um, 
having them uh, go and pay for something when you're at the pharmacy or just having them ask a question if you are, let's say you're at the amusement park and you're not sure where the big ride that you're looking for is, having them approach an attendant to ask that question. Um, Just really encouraging them to be comfortable talking to adults, be comfortable discussing an issue with a teacher. The more comfortable they are, the more comfortable they're going to tend to be to, if not speak up in class, um, to at least develop relationships with their teachers. And it's the students who have the close relationships with their teachers, or at least the closer relationships with their teachers, who are going to tend to get better, more uh, detailed letters of recommendation because the teacher will know them a little bit better. And I do see lots of kids who are have a tough time looking an adult in the eye or a tough time asking for what they want because often their parents maybe have been doing that for them. And um, now is the time to try and help your students to feel more comfortable uh, doing these things themselves. And that will pay off dividends when it comes time to start working on those recommendation letters. Thank you so much to Lori and to all of my guests today. Next week, we're going to be discussing the new Common App prompts. So those were released on March 31st. Um, and there is a little bit, there have been a few changes and then one major change in that they swapped one prompt out completely for another one. Uh, as I mentioned just a minute ago, we're going to be talking about how much a student and or a family really should borrow for college. And as we said, there is a limit. Uh, So you're going to want to hear that one. We're also going to delve into all the different early programs that exist for students who are applying to college, including binding, early decision, early action, priority, rolling admissions. If you have questions about any of those things or anything else, please send them to us at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. That special offer I've been mentioning, here are the details. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash guides to download two free guides. These are different than the guides we posted last week, but you're going to have to check out the link to learn more about what they're all about. Also, you want to join us next week uh, for a Google Hangout. It's hosted by U.S. News & World Report Education. It's going to be next Wednesday, April 8th at 4 p.m. Eastern, and my colleague Kathy Ruby is going to be discussing decoding financial aid packages. Uh, Don't forget to visit getintocollege.com forward slash guides for your free guides. Then come back next week. We're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time, 4 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.